welcome to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broader sense. From culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Cribb, about where our food and our drink comes from and the businesses and more importantly the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Welcome to this week's podcast where we are off to the very lovely Devon and it was quite a few months ago when the opportunity crossed my desk to interview Tim Hall who is the executive chef down at Burr Island in Devon and it caught my eye because I'd heard of Burr Island and I'd even driven past it a couple of times and it's such a unique position as a tidal island just off the south coast of Devon. And since I run a restaurant on the beach myself which can have some pretty interesting challenges around weather I was intrigued to understand a bit more around the complexity of running not one, but three restaurants on an island that for many hours of the day cannot be accessed at all, or certainly not without its challenges. Add to that Tim's reputation for excellent food and access to some beautiful foraged ingredients, a new owner for the hotel and a new fish restaurant on the island, and I thought it would make a lovely day out and a place to visit. Alas, lockdown got rid of the visit element, but it was still nice to catch up with Tim and learn all things Tim and Burr. I encourage you to visit the hotel website or head over to humansofhospitality.co.uk where you will find the links through to their site and social pages, but more importantly, an awesome aerial photo of the hotel that really shows off its very unique position, perhaps before you even listen. And last but not least, could you help me hit 200 reviews, please, on the Apple Podcast app? I say Apple because I know how to do it on that app, and I think things like Spotify hear conflicting information as to whether it's actually possible to leave a review or not. But if you're on Apple, pick up the app, click on the link that shows that says go to the show via this episode that's now playing, and then scroll down all the way to the bottom of the page where you will see the reviews, and you should see a little link that says either write a review or just tap on the five stars. That would make me smile and I'll appreciate you taking the time. And it's not just that I'm some egotistical maniac seeking stars, but stars means algorithms like the show, which means more people listen, which means I can keep improving the quality of the guests that come on and chat. So everyone is a winner. Okay, thanks so much. Enjoy the conversation. Cheers. Tim Hall, executive chef of the Burr Island Hotel. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hugely appreciated. Uh, for people listening, Tim, can you just say where in the world are you, please? Yeah, I'm uh, on a little island just off the coast of Devon in the very south of England. Yeah, it's a beautiful nice. hotel, very art deco, a wonderful place to be. Yeah, it's a really cool little spot, isn't it? So you're not there all the time because obviously the hotel is shut at the moment, but you're there at the minute because you've got some work going on. Is that right? Uh, yeah, well, the hotel's closed. Um, the owners took the um, decision to get some of the work done that needs to be done. So we've got lots of contractors in. So I've just come in off furlough for a couple of weeks just to feed those guys. Amazing. Okay. How have you been coping with having a, a, presumably the most time you've ever had off in your life, I would imagine, isn't it? The last yeah, few months? It's been a bit strange, to be honest. As chefs, we um, habitually work kind of 60, 70 hours a week. We don't see much of our family. And now it's, yeah, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So, yeah, it's been um, very, very different. 
I won't ask you what your preference is because your family will kill you uh, if you answer. But you've been you've been doing you've got a young daughter, a bit of homeschooling as well. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. I've got a 10 year old daughter uh, going on 16. She is. Last year, I think uh, homeschooling was a lot easier. She, she was a very cute nine year old, but all of a sudden she seems to have grown up, uh, developed yeah. a bit of sass. So, it's yeah. tough. It's, oh, tough it's, it's very tough. Yeah. And kind of dealing with the teachers as well, because this year it's um, this lockdown is a bit better set up with um like classes on uh what's the program called on teams so yeah that's a little and not being a techie myself that's a, be a little <laughs> bit difficult sometimes hey you're, you've proven yourself as a techie tim i won't go into the problems we've had getting this connection to work but you've done very well i'm impressed so uh good good work so um burr island look, looks amazing i'm genuinely gutted you were booked in god many many months ago and i was super excited because i thought just i just wanted basically to go for a ride on a tractor through the ocean and, and rock up at a, a hotel it's a really unique place for people that don't know it can you just describe it because in in essence you sort of get cut off from the mainland a couple of times a day don't you of course yes yeah. so, so it's a tidal island uh we're probably about two or three hundred meters from the mainland um so the tide's in twice a day so the tide comes in we're cut off completely from the mainland for about six hours tide goes out we've got six hours of driving back and forth across the beach and then the tide's back in for another six hours uh, we've got a sea tractor it's a big old machine um that can operate, bring us when the tide's not too high. But uh, when the winds, when you've got kind of high winds or the sea's rough, uh, they're not able to run the sea tractor. And being an old vehicle, uh, it often breaks down. So that can be a problem as well. Wow. Does it break down when it's like halfway across normally? or is It, uh, it, it has done occasionally. I've got a few photographs of, uh, of when it's gone across uh, and the wheel's fallen off, <laughs> which has been quite interesting. <laughs> Fortunately, no one's ever in danger. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's just sat it sat watching uh, yeah it's interesting yeah, amazing so fundamentally people and and your team they've got to arrive at certain times of the day i guess you you pretty much work your yeah how, how does how does that work operationally um it's 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 a logistical nightmare sometimes i mean if if the weather's good and the sea tractor's running as it should do it's not too bad um because i just rode to my chefs around and the kps around the um the sea tractor times but if if there's problems with a sea tractor or it can't run for the weather yeah i just have to change people's shifts so they come on later uh come in earlier like last week i had to even though i was only cooking for the maintenance guys i was coming in at half five in the morning um so i could get on before the tide met so yeah it's um you just got to be very adaptable working on Bear Island. Yeah, that really adds a level of complexity because because it's hard anyway with with uh, yeah trying to do rotors and the fact that you know everybody wants to eat at the same time of the day and then there's lull periods and all that. So it's always a challenge operationally to get a hotel to run behind the scenes. But I can't imagine adding in the complexity of tides because they, they you know they don't even run the same time each day, do they? They basically no, the, you know they're, they're very different. The tides shift by about forty minutes every day. Um, so yeah it's not easy you've got to think ahead all the time even even as far as deliveries and things if you know you need something on for like a a lunch booking or something like that you've got to make sure you've got it on a couple of days ahead because you can't guarantee that it will be brought across the island when you need it onto the island yeah i'm thinking of my place down on the beach which is again you know very busy venue and the challenges we have and i cannot imagine if we added that level of complexity but hey um so it's a pretty big island as well 26 acres it's, it's a decent sized space is there anything on it apart from the hotel or is it just some sort of land that you can go and have a stroll on is uh, there is a public footpath around one side of the island which is quite a nice thing to do occasionally on an afternoon when the island's quiet i've walked up to the top of the island um there's an old um building a hewer's hut so um when pilchard was a kind of a popular 
um, activity, pilchard fishing. Uh, you'd have a hewer living up there calling out to the fishermen in the village to the to go out and when they saw the shoals. So um, yeah, you can walk up and kind of explore that and have a little look around and then back down. It's probably only about a 15, 20 minute walk, but it's nice to do on a quiet day, particularly when it's really windy. Um, yeah, it's just a really beautiful sight. And of course, with a hotel, we've got a tennis court. Um, there's like a sea pool called the Mermaid Pool. It's basically a cove that's been um, walled off. So um, yes, yeah, so it's kind of like swimming in the sea, but a bit safer. And a bit colder as well, actually. I went swimming in there in November. It was freezing. Um, I yeah. preferred swimming in the sea. And <laughs> there are, there's a couple of privately owned houses as well. Um, and that's it, really. Okay. Yeah, super healthy, actually. That cold water swimming is supposed to be very good for you, I think, isn't it? So I imagine that's uh, that's quite in vogue. So people who come over, once they're there, you know, there's, there's, there's enough to do, basically. Is there a spa as well? Uh, yes, we have got a spa. So we've got um, Zorano that does treatments. Um, it's not a spa as such as we've got um, a jacuzzi and that sort of stuff. There is a sauna. Um, uh, and that's it kind of, that's sort of wise. But yeah, Zorana does treatments. So she does massages um, and beauty treatments as well. Nice. So a proper place to come and chill and of course, eat amazing food. So you're the exec chef. How long have you been there, Tim? Uh, I've been here about 13 years now. Um, I did work here before when I was younger. Initially, I came here as the pastry chef back when I was like 20, 21 uh, and spent just over a year here then and then went back up to Exeter because um, my partner was living in Exeter and she was getting a bit upset with me being away all the time. So, uh, yeah, moved back up to Exeter. And then when the hotel I was working in uh, closed for a refurb, I came back down here and I've been here since and very much settled down here, uh, bought a house, had a kid. Nice. And the South Ham is very much my life now. Yeah, sounds great. And three restaurants, in essence, on the island. You've got the Ground Hall, the Nettlefold and the Pilchard Inn. Are you in charge of all of them? And is it one sort of brigade or are you, are you a mixed brigade across the three different sort of locations? So we've got two two kitchens. So the, the Grand Ballroom and Nettlefold Restaurant, the service, they're both situated in the hotel um, and they're serviced from one kitchen in the hotel. That's kind of where I'm mainly based. I'm a very hands-on exec chef. So I spend most of my time in that kitchen. Uh, there's also the Pilchard Inn, which is almost run as a separate entity, which I've, I look after the admin side of it, but we've got a very talented um, head chef down there called Andy. So he looks after the menus. I, I look in every now and then. Um, I'll eat the food for kind of menu tastings and things like that and have a look at the menu, make sure there's nothing too offensive on there. But yeah, generally he, he's left to his own devices down there, which makes it easier for me because I can focus on um, on the two restaurants in the hotel. Mm. And are they are they quite a different vibe and quite a different style of food? Presumably they get sort of more grand as you go up, do they, from the inn all the way up to the grand? Yes, pool? yeah, very much so. I mean, the pilchard, it's kind of, I wouldn't say it's pub food because it's certainly a lot better than pub food. Andy's got um, a good background in kind of Michelin-style restaurants. Um, so yeah, it's very good quality food down there. Nettlefold restaurant is um, a predominantly seafood restaurant um, and again very good standards um, and then as you go up to the Grand Ballroom that's a it's it's a, a tasting menu restaurant so that's the only menu that runs in there is the tasting menu and that's the more kind of fine dining I mean ultimately we'd like to get a star in there at some point um, it's not the be all and end all but it's just kind of it's just something to look at in the future something to inspire the chefs um, in the kitchen yeah, nice. Must be quite nice having 
sort of three under one roof because presumably certain dishes you know for creativity wise i suppose you you might see something you really like and have an idea but it naturally fits you know one kitchen more than the other so i, I imagine as a creative outlet do you quite like having the sort of the, the, the three different spaces uh very much so yeah i mean we, with the ballroom you've because it is a tasting menu it's all kind of much smaller um intricate dishes in kind of you're not worrying about having all the elements. If obviously if you're sat down having a three course meal for your main course, you're expecting your kind of your, your meat and two veg, if you like. But with a taster menu, you can put those. You, you don't need a starch for your main course. You can have lots of little bits and bobs, lots of purees and things, lots of different um, types and textures of meat on the plate. Whereas with nettle folds, it's um, it, it's yeah they're, they're more kind of complete dishes so yeah you can just play around a bit more because yeah like you said um, a dish for one restaurant wouldn't work in another restaurant but you kind of yeah you've just got that creative outlet and it also means i can get the guys involved with creating dishes it's a very kind of collaborative kitchen so i let the guys to come up with things um, and sometimes the dishes might suit the the tasting menu a little bit better and sometimes they're a little bit more simple and and would suit the nettlefold restaurant a bit better mm, nice how many uh how many people in your team in your brigade uh i've got nine in the uh, i've got nine in the hotel kitchen and then there's three in the pub kitchen in the pilchard kitchen okay does that stay the same all year round or does it, do, uh, it do does you yeah because because all the outlets are open all year round we need the same number of staff the whole time um so when you've got the two like in the hotel kitchen for instance when you've got the two restaurants being served simultaneously you need that number of kit, uh, number of chefs in there. Um, okay. Yeah. And then is, 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 the, is there an outside terrace as well? And, and in the summer, can people? I'm presuming at the Pilchard, they can just sort of turn up, can they? If it's a nice summer's day, I'm guessing there's some sort of level of seasonality to the business. Yeah, the, the Pilchard Inn is very much seasonal. Um, there's actually a little cafe underneath the Pilchard as well, which gets service from the Pilchard Kitchen, and they can be doing like 300 covers a day, all very kind of simple food, fish and chips, burgers and chips, that sort of thing. Um, as well as doing the slightly nicer food up in the pub itself. Um, so yeah, the pilchard is very, very seasonal. In the in the hotel, it is seasonal with with regards to numbers. Obviously, we're a lot busier during the summer, being where we are on a beach. Um, but the winter's still pretty steady, um, so we keep both restaurants open. And they're, both restaurants kind of work together, if you like, because not everyone wants to eat a tasting menu. So the ones that don't want to sit down and kind of enjoy the tasting menu might go to Nettlefold so they can kind of pick and choose the dishes that they want to eat. Yeah, okay. And they're open, um, you can book, you don't have to be a resident in the hotel in essence. No, no, we're, we're open to non-residents. So um, obviously by prior booking, you you couldn't just rock up and, uh, and, and come in and eat. But yeah, by prior booking only. And then how on earth does it work? So you know, most popular time of the week, it's always eight o'clock on a Friday and Saturday night. What happens if the tide isn't right to coincide with that? Do you move service around the tide? Or um, we we can't really do that because obviously most of the guests. So we can do a maximum of fifty covers um, from the hotel. We might take another, say ten or twenty non-residents. So that the focus is very much on the hotel guests. So moving service around, kind of isn't really feasible generally what happens is uh, we just have to move the guests booking so say if you're booked on a friday and the sea tractor wasn't working for some reason then we might move it to saturday obviously with in communication with them making sure that they're happy with the process but yeah generally the kind of people that would book as non-residents are aware of the situation 
Yeah, amazing. Um, I guess yeah. yeah, locals locals will be used to it, I suppose. So that's cool. Um, so you you really you know unique space, and I encourage people listening go and um, go and visit the website because there's a great picture on the front. Sort of, uh, I suppose it's a drone shot or something that really sort it of sets yeah, the yeah, stage. Really stunning. Um, does that mean you've got access to sort of unique food? I read a little bit about you know you being interested in in sort of foraging of coastal herbs and plants. Is, have, you, have you got access to certain produce? I suppose that you can use that um, where your local knowledge really comes into play. Yeah, I um I take the guys sort of walk around the island sometimes. Um, we've got sea beets growing on the islands. Um, we've got sea purslane growing up in the kind of river outlet just across from the island. Um, whilst we've got rock samphire grows here, uh, we've got various bits and bobs that um, the garden's planted um, that you'd have in any sort of kind of kitchen garden, rosemary, bay leaves, that sort of stuff. Um, and the woods nearby as well. This time of year, we've got lots of wild garlic. We're not quite in season yet, but there's a little bit out there. I made a lovely uh, wild garlic and pumpkin uh, Wellington for a Sunday vegan Sunday roast a couple of weeks ago. So, yeah, we've got wild garlic already down here. But yeah, when it's fully in season, I like to set the guys out and pick a few bags of wild garlic and uh, incorporate that into the dishes somehow. Amazing. That's a pretty nice sort of uh, playground to have access to, I suppose, isn't it? Nice, nice store cupboard. Uh, any particularly sort of, uh, I don't know, unusual or, or, or interesting ingredients that you like to use when they're available from the island? Or? Um, not particularly. Um, rock samphire is a kind of is a bit of a weird one. I, I go through phases with rock samphire. Sometimes I hate it. Sometimes I love it. But uh, I saw something last year where um, someone tempured it because it's got quite a bitter flavour, uh, like a bitter carroty sort of flavour. Um, so it doesn't always work with every dish. But yeah, I tempured some and it was stunning. It, was, it just kind of takes it, gives it a completely different flavour and texture. So yeah, rock samphire has kind of become a firm favourite, I think. Is that is that only around at certain times? It is, yeah, yeah. So it's not always available. Okay, is that that's different to normal sea samphire? It is, you... yeah. So, um, so the the normal samphire that you get, uh, marsh samphire, obviously it's cut quite soft and tender and salty, um, and obviously by its title grows in rivers and marshes, although it gets cultivated now as well. But yeah, rock samphire just literally grows in the rocks um, uh, around the sea. So across, nice. we've got some growing, obviously being an island, it's quite rocky. So we've got plenty growing over here. And then on the mainland as well, um, we can go picking. And there's even some sea buckthorn while I think about it over on the mainland, which we can go and, uh, go and collect and then juice for things. Nice. I love samphire. It's great. It's a, yeah, samphire yeah. is lovely. It's um, rock samphire. It's such a completely different flavour to um, to marsh samphire. Um, but yeah, if you treat it right, right and pick the young, um, the young samphire, it is lovely. Mm, amazing so um i know you're into sustainability of you if you sort of uh yeah well just in general the hotel in general is pretty good i think with its uh borehole for water and solar panels and tesla charging points and all sorts of stuff but sticking with the food side of things you sell a lot of fish how do you manage that sort of sustainability angle where are you getting your fish from is it is it mainly day boats and, and local stuff how do you how do you cope with that yeah, I've got several local um, fish suppliers. Um, yeah, I, I, I only buy day boat stuff. I don't think there's any reason to buy, to buy anything else, really. Um, it, it's very easy to kind of use fish, use sustainable fish. So I've got uh, Britannia, which is um, it's a family-owned business, uh, a couple of bays over uh, Start Bay, um, and they have their own boats that they go out for lobsters, scallops, crabs, things like that. They do land the odd bit of fish, but yeah, they're, they're mainly shellfish. So I buy direct from them. 
So I'm getting brilliant products um, and better prices than I would do from big fishmongers. And then uh, I've got a, a couple of bigger fishmongers where I just buy their dayboat fish. So one is um, buys out of Brixham Market and one buys out of Plymouth Market. So I've got the kind of a pick of two good markets. I can always get the best best fish. Okay. Um, and yeah. You manage even when the weather's bad, you still manage to get the dayboat stuff or do you have to have a backup for uh, when you're looking out on those particularly rough oceans? Um, I'm always looking ahead anyway, obviously, because <laughs> with the logistics of this place, you've just always got to stay one step ahead. But because the menus are printed daily, um, I can just chop and change and kind of and use what they've got really. Okay. Ever get into conversations with the chefs? I haven't. I, I need to speak probably directly to a fisherman, but I'm interested in this challenge, I suppose, of bycatch. And, and you know, often the boat's going out to, to catch something specific and they don't catch it and then they've got to throw it back because they don't have quotas. Uh, are you aware of the sort of, uh, yeah, I suppose, you know, what, what fish is, is easy to catch and any of the challenges the fishermen have got around there at the moment? Or is that uh, out of your uh, zone? Um, I'd say it's probably a little bit out of my zone. Obviously, I kind of I speak daily with with the fishmongers with fish suppliers to see what they've got. I mean the the problem of bycatch is something that everyone's aware of, um, and whether that will be kind of resolved with us leaving the EU, I don't know. Whether um, things will be get get easier for the fishermen, um, it's someone for something first, someone far more intelligent than I to answer that. But yeah, for me personally, I just kind of try and avoid the fish that you know are a problem or things like say monkfish if i'm using monkfish i'll try and use the cheek as well so like lots of chefs that they'll just use the tails but quite often what happens is monkfish they um they have their heads chopped off at sea so you're losing the head just just so they can land the tail so they can land more of it but if you're using more of the fish then it kind of helps alleviate that problem makes it a little bit more sustainable mm. Yeah, I need to get a fisherman on. Actually, reminded me, I might, I might, have, I might phone Mitch Tonks. He's got his own fisherman now, going out of his rockfish he restaurants has, yeah. now in that, that neck of the woods. I might, might give him a buzz and see if I can have a chat with these guys because it's particularly interesting, like you say, off the back of Brexit and the changes um, that are being made. In general, though, you know, I think it's great. You know, working with local suppliers off the back of COVID, how are those suppliers coping? What's, uh, yeah, what's the backdrop, I suppose, to what's going on? Have they managed to pivot into other markets, or are they desperately banging on the door saying, "Come on, Tim, when are you going to start ordering again?" Um, a few of them have have struggled. Um, I know one of the fishmongers, uh, he clocked that I was back on site, so he's been phoning me regularly, trying to get me to buy stuff. But obviously, as I'm just cooking for the um, the maintenance team, I'm not buying expensive fish at the moment, uh, which is unfortunate. Um, so but they are struggling. Obviously, there's help out there for the hotels, but not so much the suppliers. Um, some of them, like uh, dry goods, I use a company called Forest Produce for a lot of my kind of fine goods and uh, dry store sort of goods. Um, but they buy from local cheese suppliers, local charcuterie companies. Um, and yeah, they, they've told me there's a few cheese suppliers that have gone out of business. I know there's a charcuterie company that's gone out of business just because there's not not the demand for it. And Forest themselves have started to live doing home delivery to chefs just to try and, um, yeah, just just to try and make a little bit of money really mm. yeah it's yes. not, a, not a good time for anyone 
No, pretty uh, heartbreaking. Well, we'll come on to coming out the other side of this shortly. But just carrying on that sustainability angle, have you seen a lot of change? You, you mentioned just now about your vegan uh, pumpkin, I think it was, uh, Wellington, that you made. Are you seeing uh, changes in regards to sort of diet, I suppose, particularly the growth in plant-based, flexitarian? Uh, have you noticed that in the last couple of years? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I'd, I've been doing this job for, what, 20 years now, I guess. Um, and... You, I mean, I'd never fed a vegan when I was younger. It just kind of, you, you might get the odd vegetarian, but most menus just had the token vegetarian dish. It was always a mushroom risotto. Wherever you went, it was just wild mushroom risotto. Um, but for me, I'd be livid if I was a vegetarian or a vegan and that was the only option on the menu. So for me, I always try and have a couple of different options and vegan options as well on the menu. But trying to be a little bit, um, a bit more inventive as well, kind of, Rather than making vegan food, just making food that is really, really tasty, that just so happens to be vegan. Like at home the other night for the family, I just did um, some five-spice deep-fried tofu with a, a, like a green veg stir-fry sort of thing. And it was really, really tasty, but it just so happened to be vegan as well. So it's, chefs need to think like that, I think, rather than, oh, no, it's another bloody vegan coming in the restaurant. What are we going to feed them? What's in the fridge? But um, actually coming up with exciting dishes that you want to eat as a chef, not necessarily as a vegan. Mm. It's funny that I had five spice tofu for dinner last night. It was beautiful, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny how these things just kind of go around and latch on. Like, yeah, uh, it chickpea, was really cool. Chickpea meringues is another one that seems to be quite popular. My sister's a vegan. Um, and on our family um, WhatsApp group, she was talking about that because she wanted to do a baked Alaska and she wanted to know whether it would be um, – possible to do it with aquafaba like the the water that you get from tin chickpeas but yeah it does exactly the same thing does it i've not tried that oh it's it's really really good if you've if you've got a vegan coming for dinner or even in your restaurants um you can do vegan pavlovas and all sorts it's brilliant you just make it in the same way as you'd make your normal french meringue um but instead of using egg white you use um the chickpea water the aquafaba and uh yeah it works beautifully yeah, you say you say in the same way that I would just sort of knock up a French meringue, Tim, and, and if I knew where to start, that would be great. But luckily, uh, having a restaurant with lots of chefs in it, I, what I do is say, any chance of a meringue, yeah. and uh, and it makes you very lazy. I did make my own tofu last night. What, what's your thoughts on that? I, I guess I'm interested in our responsibilities uh, as restaurateurs. For, you know, as soon as you dive into the environment sustainability side, you know, it, inevitably this sort of overuse. You know, meat meat with too many meals comes up. Do you think that your job as the restaurateur is simply just to you know order what people or, or make what people order, or do you think we have a responsibility to try and sort of you know hold their hand a little bit i suppose and try and move them into more plant-based food and 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 think about sustainability when you're actually creating menus um i don't think it's really on us as chefs to to kind of educate and guide the customer obviously the customers they're coming out for a meal they want to enjoy themselves i think we need to make it available and we need to make um things like vegan food as tasty as possible and certainly i've changed my approach to um to vegetarians and vegan cooking it always used to be a bit of a ball's egg oh what am i going to put on as a vegetarian dish now um but i actually enjoy coming up with these dishes now so yeah i i I don't think it's necessarily on us people come out to eat in restaurants because they want to enjoy themselves and have a good time but with so many people becoming vegetarian and vegan now you've you've got to cater to that market and gradually more and more people will kind of will change their eating habits. I think with 
I mean, everyone's kind of pretty much on board with the fact that we do need to eat less meat than we have been eating. Um, so if you've got other alternatives there that are really tasty, then, um, yeah, then, then that's great. Mm. Yeah, we were definitely guilty of that in my restaurants of it always being a sort of slightly second thought, but but really changed. I get a, a weekly uh, food box delivered and I, I'm loving from a creativity perspective. And I, I remember chatting to a chef a couple of years ago, said you can really judge a chef by their vegetarian food because you've almost got to be much more creative but i've learned so much i had some uh, sharon fruit i think it was delivered yesterday and i didn't even recognize it luckily my wife knew what it was so a little google and you know how you use it and it was yeah. beautiful and it just inspired me that's funny enough what, what one of the ingredients that went in the couscous that went with the tofu but it was lovely <laughs> and uh, yeah i just I, i'm enjoying the creative journey of just getting random veggies delivered every week and going right what the bloody hell am i going to do with this i made a nice celeriac pate a couple of days ago white yeah, bean right. pate. my chef will be very impressed to hear that's worth a worth a try actually it was lovely celeriac and white bean uh, pate sort of in, in sea salt and rosemary and uh, yeah delicious little starter anyway i'm not going to pretend that so i can advise a chef on uh, on, on what food to make um you mentioned a kitchen garden just now as well so is is there a you've you've got a garden on the island in essence have you is that yeah, is that a, yeah, a big affair, not, affair yeah it's not really um a big affair it's kind of just plotted uh, around the other plants i think there's there's various kind of herbs and um plants um that are there i have a little chat with a gardener and sh- she'll ask kind of what sort of things i want planted but generally it's the kind of the herbs and things um flowers because i like using a few flowers like borage and things like that um like she'll plant chives there's various different types of thyme that she's planted for me uh, she did plant some globe artichokes but we have a massive problem with rabbits on the islands because um, there's being an island there's no natural predators of the rabbits so um well, they used to be a fox years ago, but that one died, and said so they yeah they're just spreading um, like rabbits do. So yeah, they, they just anything she plants, she eats. So yeah, the the globe artichokes didn't last long, unfortunately. Yeah, but no, we've we've got a few bits that that we can use. Hmm. Okay. Do you, do you get to use the rabbit? Uh, no, it's, it's it's something that I'd really like to do. I think with with so much red tape around, obviously you've got to have it's. I say traceable, but obviously it's as traceable as it can be because it's from your doorstep. But yeah, maybe it's something I need to look into, what I need to, um, what certification I need to get to say that it's safe to feed to the customers. Um, I have had rabbit on the menu before and it didn't get on the tasting menu and it didn't go down particularly well. Um, It's it's one of those meats where people are a little bit scared, I think, of eating it because they think of rabbit and it being a pet. But obviously, it's rabbit is one of those truly sustainable meats. There's so much rabbit out there, um, particularly if you're buying wild shot rabbit. It's yeah, it's a it's a no brainer eating rabbit. Really, it's so tasty, and there's so much you can do with it. Like we had a lovely dish on. Um, so I rolled the the rabbit loin with the offal, wrapped it in prosciutto, uh, cooked it sous vide, and then pan fried it afterwards. Um, the legs we confit down, so we made a, a rabbit riette with it. And uh, just served it with uh, some carrot puree, some heritage carrots as well, um, a little um, anise you from the rabbit bones, and then some coriander oil. And it's beautiful. But yeah, it was just a bit kind of, I think it just scared a few of the diners on the tasting menu, just the thought of eating rabbit, which is a shame because it is, like I said, it's one of those meats we need to eat. It's, it's a truly sustainable meat rabbit. 
Yeah, I reckon if you call it Timsbur Island Rabbit and buy yourself your own gun, Tim, then uh, yeah, <laughs> you, might, you might do all right. That's something to sort of alleviate the boredom when you're sat there uh, only well, serving the Well, one of the, the maintenance guys has got an air rifle, incidentally, and he does oh, take oh, out no, a few of the rabbits. doing this afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've got to wait till about 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock to get off the island because the tide's um, the tide's in until then. So, yeah, maybe I'll borrow, borrow the rifle. And it's all fitting together, Tim. You've got all that time sat there looking at the tractor broken down, waiting to get off the island. You've got a rifle and loads of rabbits and a, and a well, restaurant. This is this, a this, marriage this, made in heaven. Yeah, a exactly. marriage made in heaven. Exactly. The cheese. Oh, very good. Very good. Um, and then, yeah, so you're quite collaborative. Are you from a sort of brigade perspective? You, you get the team involved in the in the menu design and uh, yeah, get their dishes. Yeah, very much so. It, it can be um, a lonely old fair being being um, an exec chef sometimes. Just kind of coming up with new dishes so yeah i get the guys involved um one of my head chefs jordan um he, he's a young lad but he um he trained up in london so he's in mission star places so he's he's very knowledgeable um so yeah he comes up with lots of good ideas and some of the younger guys will come up with ideas for canapes and chantelle on pastry will come up with ideas for desserts so yeah i just like to get them involved it gives them a little bit of ownership as well so they're kind of um they've got it's not just a job then they've got a bit of pride in what they're doing because they're seeing their food go out not just oh, i'm just cooking tim's food again so yeah I'd, I'd, i like it to be a kind of a very family sort of kitchen so we're all working together rather than they're working for me if you like yeah and have some of them stuck around because of that have you got some that have been with you for a while um i mean i had two new guys start when was it just after the first lockdown? But apart from that, all of them have worked with for me for several years. Some of them three or four years. But yeah, it's um, it's a quite a close knit team. Nice. And even two, even two that left uh, after last summer. We had a very, very busy, very hard summer last year. And uh, two of them that have worked for me for a couple of years, they went off to another hotel. Um, did three days there, realised the grass wasn't green, and they've they've come back and they'll be here for a long old time now. Amazing. Sometimes you need them to do that, don't you? Just go and uh, double check somewhere else, and then go. Oh, yeah, actually, yeah, he's all right. They, he's all right. That's him. Yeah, the way. Yeah, they, I think people appreciate once they see that how different other kitchens are. They they appreciate where they're working a little bit more. Mm. As a matter yes. of interest, it just popped into my head. Can you swim to the back to the land if uh, if it's high tide? Um, I wouldn't advise it. I've done it once before, and um, yeah, it wasn't the best experience. Have you been drinking? <laughs> um but yeah it, if it's still water then yeah then you probably could but if there's any sort of waves it's not advisable at all all right very good you, you covered the, the health and safety the, the hotel would have had a heart attack if you said yeah yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. cool yeah. just swim across They'd have been do not, do not do it under any circumstances <laughs> but generally if it's calm and nice then um then the sea track will be running unless it's broken okay You've got yourself out of it there. I'm going yeah. to buy Lilo and paddle over. Um, I've waded so, across several times. I mean, it's yeah. like probably half an hour before the tide actually parts. It's probably wadeable. Um, so, yeah, in the summer, if the sea track has not been um, running and there's a few of us going off at the same time, we'll wade off together up to that knee sort of depth. Wow. You just leg it and hope for the best. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Nice. I still haven't bought myself a dry suit. Every, every year I think, oh, yeah, I'm going to buy myself a dry suit this year. But I never get around to it. It's a good idea. Well, if you're as busy this year as you were last year and we get a bit of a longer season, we'll come back to that in a minute. So um, I just want to touch on the hotel itself a little bit then. So, uh, I don't know, 
built back in the 1930s, I think, wasn't it? Archie Nettleford, that's where the name of the restaurant comes from, isn't it? Mainly built it for his uh, his mates from London. Who's your typical kind of guest now? What sort of person tends to uh, come? Is it is it the Londoners coming down or is it is it used by the locals? Or? Yeah, it's, it's very much the Londoners. Obviously, because they're kind of the price point that we are, um, it's the kind of the more wealthier clientele and also the people that were a bucket list experience that they want to... They want to get under their belt. Um, lots of people save up over a couple of years and then come here, spend a couple of nights. And then we've got a lot of regulars that will come here and stay kind of three, four, five um, nights. Um, but yeah, obviously, because it is quite an expensive place to stay, it's generally the more um, more wealthy clientele uh, out of London, Yorkshire, um, places like that. Okay, nice. And then getting a lot of work done at the moment. Giles bought the place a couple of years ago, I think, doesn't he? Has, has there been a lot of changes in, since since Giles bought it? Oh, very much so. Um, I got a brand new kitchen fitted. Uh, oh, wow. Nice. Just That's a way of uh, winning over the brigade, isn't it? Oh, yeah, no, yeah, it was brilliant. Um, yeah, it was a bit old and tired. Um, so, yeah, they spent a fair bit of money doing up the kitchen, new extraction system and stuff. Uh, Nettlefold Restaurant is is a new thing. Um, under Giles's kind of guidance under his ownership uh, prior to that it was just used as like the breakfast room and for um, for Sunday lunch as well uh, so yeah now it's, it's its own restaurant so it just kind of broadens the appeal of the place I, I can imagine that conversation where he said all right Tim you can have a new kitchen but we're setting up a new restaurant was it uh, was it a sort of you know a bit of a bartering exercise or um a little bit yeah i mean my main concern was because most of our most of the diners in the restaurants are our hotel guests my concern was wouldn't we just end up splitting the guests that we've got rather than kind of getting more in so rather than doing 50 in one restaurant you'd do a 25 in each so you kind of doubling up the workload but not necessarily the revenue yeah and what was the reality uh it was pretty much that to be fair um, <laughs> but we have picked up more more uh, guests from it but i don't think as many as as was was hoped from it but um it's just given more more appeal so now people can stay a couple of nights rather than just having the one restaurant to dine in now there's the two or three restaurants with the pilchard being open properly now so rather than people staying like one night they might stay two or three nights so it has that that's the positive effect it's had yeah i can see that i can imagine as a customer because the grand the grand uh, what's it called the grand ballroom oh, the grand ballroom yeah, it's very. It is literally that, isn't it? I think it's sort of black tie. It is, yeah, it's, it's, if, yeah, it's a black tie dinner, which isn't everyone's cup of tea. I mean, me personally, I'd love to eat the food up there, but I'm not a black tie kind of person. I wouldn't want to sit in a restaurant. I'd just feel uncomfortable sitting there eating in um in my penguin suit. So for me, I'd be more comfortable uh, dining in Nettlefold. And certainly, when I come in for dinner, I've I've eaten in the Nettlefold restaurant just because I feel a little bit more um more comfortable in there because it is a little less formal. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think I do the same. And like you say, if you're coming for a couple of nights, it's, you know, as you say, as a as a bucket list thing, maybe a black tie and a tasting menu is great, but uh, you wouldn't want to do it two nights in a row, would you? So he's, no. he probably speaks some sense. Um, new kitchen, did that make a big difference to your life? Uh, it did, yeah. It just kind of, um, it changed the flow of the kitchen a little bit because it was a bit disjointed. Um, it's a weird shaped kitchen because you kind of imagine a square with a semicircle kind of stuck on the end. So the square was where the sauce section was and where pot wash was. And then the semicircle was split into two. One side was pastry, one side was uh, was larder or the staff that's come from. So the waiting staff had to walk around the outside of the kitchen through pot wash, through the sauce section to get to the pastry section. Um 
And from a safety point of view, it was just an absolute nightmare because you've got chefs with hot pans stepping back into waiting staff that are walking by with with beautiful desserts. So that was never ideal. So now um, we've got one big long pass. So the waiting staff don't actually need to come into the kitchen anymore. Um, and yeah, it just I, I can see what's going on then across the whole pass, whereas before I couldn't see what was going on uh, back in pastry. So if people are um, not doing the things they're supposed to be doing, I can clock it now, whereas before I couldn't. Yeah. Not that anyone uh, misbehaves in the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Never. sure. Yeah, no, they always uh, run like clockwork. Uh, but yeah, for amazing what 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 difference uh, just those little sort of things can make. Um, as a matter of interest as well, so uh, working with the bar, I know you you know you follow the seasons and uh, local produce and all that kind of stuff. Gary, is he still there? He was the, the 26 no, years no, or something. Was the barman or was he gone? Yeah, 20, 26, 27 years. I think it was he was here. He actually retired uh, in September. I think it was. So it's a sad day. He popped in yesterday to say hello. Um, he'd been up in Scotland visiting his mother, but yeah, he was um he was very much character, very much part of their island. Yeah, yeah. amazing. Okay, yeah. well, I was thinking with with him, but even without him, do you get involved much with the drinks? Do you try and complement? I'm thinking sort of you know cocktails or making certain kind of uh, yeah sort of uh, concentrates or stuff like that or food that goes with the bar. Do you get do you Not work much with the bar? Massively so. Every now and then they'll come to me with a cocktail and they'll ask my advice and kind of I'll taste it and tell them what I think they should put with it. Um, we've just taken on a new um, food and beverage manager who. He, he just started just before Christmas, so I've not had an awful lot of dealings with him yet, but he's he's very keen on that side of things. So, yeah, it will be something we'll be working a little bit more collaboratively with the drinks, um, which should be quite cool, um, making caviars and things like that, I guess, for, for his cocktails and doing little dried fruit garnishes for him, which should be quite yeah. exciting. I think he's... Yeah. Uh, yeah, we yeah, try and get our team to work with the with the um, with the chefs as well. It's quite interesting. It's certainly interesting, like you say, when you're tasting cocktails and getting a chef's palate on a cocktail. It's always interesting to uh, yeah to get their perspective. They often come up with some great little nuggets when the uh, chefs are off doing uh, competitions and stuff like that. Yeah. So your background then, um, Tim, just interested in in what got you into cooking. Really, I know you 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 started at a pretty young age with your family, but you you ended up going off and working at uh, a restaurant in Brittany. What was it about that time in? in france and that restaurant that really sort of made you cemented that decision and made you think you know what yeah this is this is the career for me um it was just the i mean the the food that, that was over there it was a michelin style restaurant i was in um and the quality of um of the produce that was coming in was amazing i mean sea bass i'd only seen small sea bass in this country before um in in the pub that i was working in and at college but they, they were using sea bass the size of bloody salmon it was just incredible um that the berries they had were so beautiful and fresh and plump and and just the, the passion of all the chefs that are in that kitchen was in, it was just infectious almost the kind of the passion that those guys had that just yeah just spending a whole summer out there um i mean the camaraderie was brilliant as well it was a really good group of chefs um it was me and one other english lad that went out there neither of us spoke a word of French, but we were very much kind of included and kind of brought into the team, if you like. Um, and their kind of their passions um, impressed upon us. But yeah, just the food, everything about being out there, it was just, it was the most amazing summer of my life. I'd love to go back and repeat that summer. Just knowing what I know now as well would be awesome. Yeah. And, and was it literally from that point onwards where you went, right, this is the career for me? Because it's quite a tough 
industry you know it's tough hours yours are even more tough because you've got the tidal problem but uh yeah you know it's a lot of work and weekends was, was there any points where you thought you know what i don't want to do this anymore or have you or have you loved it pretty much from that point um, i think even before then it was a career that i knew i wanted to do from a young age i i wanted to be a chef even when i was at high school doing because i did um food technology as one of my um gcses it was yeah i i knew i wanted to be a chef but over the years, I mean, there's been times where I've wanted to get out of it. A few years ago, um, actually, probably it wasn't even as long ago as that. It was probably about two years ago. Um, I was kind of faltering a little bit. I even did um, a HGV course because I decided I wanted to get out of catering and be a lorry driver. And I thought, well, if if I do want to become a chef again, I could buy myself a big wagon and do like um, that mobile caterings, like fine dining from from a lorry sort of thing. But yeah, you sometimes you just get fed up with with the industry in a whole, like for me, there, there's so many allergens that and the paperwork. It, it cooking's almost. Sometimes you feel like the fun's been taken out of it. Like when I when I was a young chef, literally you just cooked and that was it. Maybe as a young chef, I didn't see all the paperwork and the admin side of it. But yeah, when you're an exec chef, the admin, the paperwork, um, the daily battles with allergens. Like when I was younger, you might get one, maybe one allergy a week, um, if that. But now we've we probably do about seven or eight different allergens each night. And you just kind of, yeah, it just becomes very pressured and very hard work sometimes. So, yeah, I, I think I just kind of got sick of that and not spending time with the family. Obviously, having a missus and a kid at home as well, you want to spend time with the family. But when you're working 60, 70 hours a week and you're missing birthdays and things like that and, and never kind of being at home on Christmas Day, yeah, he just got on top of me. So I thought, do you know what? I'm, I'm going to try something different. Lorry driving was always something that had appealed to me. Um, so I went for it and fortunately I failed. And <laughs> kind of, <laughs> it was always like fate then. And, um, and then lockdown happened and it kind of watching lots of um, cookery on TV. And I was encouraged to write a cookery book as well. And it actually kind of, rekindled my love and passion for cooking and now i'm chomping at the bit again and even the guys that i'm working with that have worked with me for a long time have kind of very much seen the change in me um because yeah i'm just really hungry for it again now i kind of want to experiment different things and yeah every day's a school day again which is which is brilliant but yeah, yeah it, does, it does get on top of you i don't think there's a chef out there who hasn't had like a period of their career where they've thought do you know what i really don't want to do this anymore but you just kind of yeah, you come out of it and you, like anything, you kind of get tired of things sometimes, but you, you get through it and get back on the horse and go for it again. Yeah, I don't think it's just chefs. I don't think there's a human out there, Tim, who hasn't at some point thought, my goodness, is this the right thing for me? But yeah, hospitality can be particularly challenging. But then the flip side, as you sort of said then, it can be such a buzz and the camaraderie with your team and all that sort of stuff can be great. And and lovely that, that you know, you've managed to have a little bit of a rest, much as the negativity. Are you expecting then? So we're, we're hopefully going to reopen. I, I'll ask you for your punt, I suppose, as to yeah, what, what you're working towards at the moment from a reopening date. And then are you expecting a, a sort of a, a very busy uh, post-pandemic bounce you're in the right area down there on the coast in the sort of uh, yeah the tourism mecca of Devon um yeah I think we're aiming um they're certainly wanting me back on about the 8th of March and I think we're reopening on about the 14th or 18th we're looking at but obviously until we get a, a firm date from from Boris our saviour 
um we're, we're really kind of working blind so we've got things in place rotors ready so when we're given the go-ahead from government to say right that's when hospitality can reopen we're we're chomping at the bit ready to go um so i can get the guys back in the kitchen cook up so the, these two weeks where i've been here cooking for the um the contractors i've been coming up with some new dishes new menus so we can uh, go through those um the week before we reopen and do that but yeah certainly if if this summer is anything like last summer uh, it's going to be really really busy really strong uh, last summer was the busiest summer we've ever had on bear islands obviously i've been here a long old time and i've never ex experienced it that busy but people weren't going abroad so the money that they were spending on like they might spend a couple of thousands going on holiday to turkey or spain or somewhere like that um they were spent coming here and spending the same money on a few nights um on bear islands so yeah it was brilliant for us last year and hmm. it'll be much the same this year, I'm guessing. Yeah, I think that's probably the case, isn't it? <laughs> Looking at the uh, news at the moment about having the quarantine in hotels and, uh, yeah, pretty much being told don't go abroad, aren't you? Then hopefully we will get a uh, a decent year for domestic tourism, which will be uh, exciting. So, well, look, it's, you know, really good. It's, a, it's such a cool place. Uh, love the look of it. I will get down to uh, meet you in person one day, Tim, and hopefully – have a beer and a rabbit overlooking the, <laughs> yeah. uh, overlooking the bay. Um, uh, but yeah, thanks for taking the time. Where should people go if they want to follow you? Are you are you sort of on social media in some? Yeah, I way? I do Instagram. Obviously, we've got the the hotel Instagram as well. Um, I've got my own personal one, so I kind of put photos of the food and uh, more family life as well. I'm a, I'm a keen mountain biker, so I get mountain biking and cycling with a family. So and walking as well with a family as well. So the shots of the food and cooking with the family at home um, on my instagram which is uh, tim burr tim burr hall i think it is or tim underscore burr underscore hall i think is my insta um i don't really do an awful lot of other social media not being a, a techie myself i need to get back into it really um i know the pr people are, have been on at me to get on with uh, some of the social media stuff it's always been something i've, I've shied away well, they should leave you alone for a little while now, Tim, because you've done a podcast. So uh, that's, got, that's got to buy you some time. Hasn't <laughs> well, you? So, look. I've got another thing tomorrow for um, for a magazine. So yeah, oh, I think, I think it. while it's quiet and while I've uh, got no kitchen duties, they're trying to get as, as much in as possible. Yeah, perfect. Okay, well, I will put links up to the hotel website and the hotel social uh, pages as well on the uh, show notes that will go out with this episode. But uh, for now, Tim, look, thanks so much for sparing my time. Really interesting to yeah to get to chat and hear of the unique challenges you've got down there. But I wish you the very best of luck with the summer. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a great chat. Perfect. Thank you. Okay, you made it to the end, and I really hope you enjoyed learning all about Burr Island and what Tim is up to in that unique part of the world. I, for one, will definitely be going to visit next time I'm heading down to the southwest. And don't forget that you can head over to humansofhospitality.co.uk to find the notes that go with this show and the various links to the social media and the websites. But whilst you are there, why not sign up for the weekly newsletter? No spam, just an email once a week on a Monday lunchtime with information and links to that week's show and guests and any useful information that we chat about. Okay, I'll be back next Monday with a brand new episode all the way from the Real Food Cafe in Scotland. For now, have a great week. Cheers. <laughs>